And now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Today, as we continue uh, through the study of God's Word, we are in Luke chapter 20, beginning to read in verse 27, and we'll read to the end of verse 40. This is the third, if you've been tracking with us, the third now in a series of confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've seen them confront him already on the issue of his authority, and then on the issue of his politics. Today, they're going to confront him on the issue of his theology. We'll see the way that Jesus, our Savior, responds with the wisdom of God uh, to unbelief. Today in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27 and reading through verse 40. Hear now God's word as we read it together. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are, they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. They no longer dared to ask him any questions. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Back in uh, 2016, The Guardian, the, the newspaper from the UK, The Guardian reported that according to a new book by a Cambridge academic, atheism is not a modern invention. <laughs> I suppose that's news to somebody. Uh, I, I suppose... Uh, that statement might catch you off guard if you believe the way many people believe that unbelief uh, is a modern privilege. If you uh, believe, uh, you imagine, like many, that, that only recently and only through intellectual enlightenment has, has humanity outgrown its need for a deity, maybe that would come as a surprise to you. But then again, if you're merely reading your Bible... You may wonder if we need a new book to tell us that unbelief is an old thing. If you are merely reading your Bible, you already know that there is nothing new under the sun. If you're merely reading your Bible, you already know that mankind is always suppressing the truth that can be known about God in unrighteousness. If you are merely reading your Bible, you already know that as long as there has been religion, there have been atheists, and as long as there have been saints, there have been skeptics. And this passage shows us that Jesus also had his share of run-ins with religious deniers. 
Jesus knew what it was to deal with skepticism. And in this passage, he models how to answer unbelief with the power of God. Now, the question Jesus uh, faced cuts to the heart of Christian theology. It has to do with the hope of resurrection. And that means that he faced a challenge that we often face. The challenge that the resurrection seems absurd to unbelief. This is our first point today, that the resurrection seems absurd to unbelief. Now, Luke begins this passage by introducing us to a band of men uh, known as the Sadducees. We haven't met the Sadducees yet in Luke's gospel. This is the only place they show up here in this book. But uh, the Sadducees were, were another one of these special interest groups. Like the Pharisees, the Herodians, the, the Zealots, they, they were a, a mix of, of political ideology and religious belief, and they were all smashed together, and, and they were this, this group. Uh, the, these, uh, though, were the men who traced their roots uh, back to the high priest at the time of King David, a man by the name of Zadok. And then after the Babylonian exile, we've read about the sons of Zadok and Ezra and Nehemiah because it was the sons of Zadok who were uh, given charge over the temple, the sacrificial system in, uh, in, uh, in Israel after the exile. In time, the, the Zadokites became the Sadducees. Kent Hughes suggests that, that by Jesus' day, they formed the nucleus of the priests staffing the temple. So that means that among the power players in Israel, the Sadducees were the old money. Literally, they were the old money. They were very, very wealthy. They were very deeply entrenched. They were very politically motivated to hang on to their positions of authority. They also were religious materialists. Notice that Luke tells us in his opening verse that the Sadducees deny there is a resurrection. That's one piece of the picture, but in Acts 23, the, the picture is broadened. You remember that time that Paul is gathered before the Jewish council, before the Sanhedrin, uh, and, uh, and he distracts them with a little bit of infighting. He realizes that there's a difference of opinion between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and so he mentions the resurrection to get them talking amongst themselves and not talking about him. And in Acts 23, Luke adds that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. We know from other writings of the early centuries that they didn't believe really in much of anything uh, that couldn't be seen or, or touched or tasted or felt. They, they believed in God in a general sense, but, but theologically they were more like deists, that maybe he was out there, but he didn't have anything to do with the world in which people lived. They didn't believe that God intervened in the world. They didn't believe in any sort of a life after death. They didn't believe in anything like eternal reward or punishment. Their faith, their hope, their approach to reality was completely bound to this earthly existence. Religion for the Sadducees was at best a way to live a good life now. Because a good life now was all there was, they believed. And to them, the idea of the resurrection from the dead was, was an illogical stupidity. You get a sense for just how stupid they think it is when you hear their question. Jesus has faced various questions. We've mentioned this already, but this is a question like the others uh, that is asked not to hear what Jesus thinks, but to get Jesus to be silent. They ask him, essentially, when the resurrection happens, which brother out of these seven will get to call dibs on the woman that they were all married to? 
It's not exactly the language that they use, but that's the sense. It's an offensive question. It's a question that you ask to get somebody to shut up rather than to engage you in dialogue. It's a question you ask to end the debate. In rhetorical terms, this is called a reductio ad absurdum. You don't have to know Latin to know what it means. A reduction to the absurd. Taking somebody else's position, their argument, and stretching it to untenable extremes to say this is not practicable, this, this is not something that you should believe in, this is all ridiculous. See where this leads if you take it to its natural conclusions. I like the best of lies. Their question was built on a bit of truth. and In this case, the truth came from uh, the scripture they're quoting in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, they say that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. We remember this from our Old Testament readings. We remember this from engaging uh, with, uh, with various places in the Old Testament, really. This is the precept that, that formed the backbone, the, the tension in the book of Ruth. This is the precept before the law was given that Judah should have applied to his righteous, more righteous than him, uh, daughter-in-law Tamar. This is a biblical concept. It was a good thing. In this uh, day and age, in that society, we know, of course, that if a man died without children, his land, his possessions would be lost. Worse than that, his name, his, his wisdom, remembrance of him and his family line may be swallowed up by someone else. Perhaps worst of all, his widow could be left behind with no one to care for her in her old age. And so the Lord, in grace and mercy, gave this, this law, this precept to his people as a way to love one another. It was a good thing. So their question begins with a biblical precept, but then it, it reaches unreasonable conclusions on purpose. Seven men can't share the same wife, can they? Can you imagine spending endless ages fighting and bickering over uh, which one uh, might love her more, or, or which one had been married to her the longest, or which one, if given a chance, might turn out to be her soulmate for the next few hundred thousand years? It's asked in a way to make it all seem absurd. It's a way of, of just pouring contempt on the whole idea. And this isn't a new topic, actually. Skeptics often scorn what they do not believe. You've probably heard somebody ask those, uh, those old brain twisters that don't amount to much, but they can catch you off guard if you're not ready, right? If God is all-powerful, can he create a mountain that's so large that even he can't move it? If God can do anything, can he create a square that's also a circle? Can he make mathematical pi a whole number instead of a fraction? If God can do anything he wants, can't he just make himself cease to exist? They're not real objections to faith, but it's merely an attempt to show you, to prove to you by some twist of logic that belief in an all-perfect, all-powerful, all-good creator God is really just ridiculous absurdity. Now, those arguments are straw men, but there are stronger versions of the same approach. While the famous anti-theist Christopher Hitchens was alive, uh, he would often end his public appearances by issuing a challenge to his audience. 
he would challenge the people who heard him to uh, name one moral good done by a religious believer that could not have been done by a non-believer. That is, name one thing that is an objective good that a Christian does that an atheist couldn't. And then, while the audience is sitting there and pondering and wondering if such a thing exists, he would, he would smugly imply that if you can't come up with an answer to his challenge, then that proves that your religion is at best meaningless. At worst, it's dangerous. Now, there is, of course, an answer uh, to Hitchens' challenge, even if he disagreed with it. And if uh, a Christian responded by saying, actually, you know, it's, it's a moral good uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. If a Christian answered that actually it is an objective good to worship the Lord your God in spirit and in truth, if a Christian answered Hitchens' challenge with the answer that he didn't like, that he didn't want to accept, well, then that's easy. Then he would just laugh at them and scorn them to death. Oh, how absurd you Christians think that worship is good for humanity. How insane you Christians think that love for God is good for people. How out of touch with reality. How purely pathetic. Now, not everybody who doubts Christianity is hostile to it. I know that. And you know that. There are, by God's grace, religious skeptics who are attracted to the gospel. They want to know more about the gospel. They're asking good questions to learn what Christians believe rather than to, to stop Christians from talking about it. And by God's grace, there are people out there who are skeptical, yet they're trying to figure it out. And as God's ambassadors, we ought to be ready with a winsome and a gracious word for those who are asking good questions. Not every skeptic is out to scorn what they don't believe, but some of them are. And the spirit of the Sadducees is alive and well. And it's not new. In fact, it's not unexpected. This is perhaps exactly what we should expect from unbelief. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The things of the Spirit of God are folly. They are an absurdity. They are illogical nonsense. To those who attempt to understand them with the natural faculties of the human heart and mind. It doesn't mean that the gospel is illogical. Paul is making a statement of spiritual orientation here. The things of the spirit are folly to the natural man. You might say to the unregenerate man, to the person, the man or woman, the boy or girl who by sin has their heart bent away from knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because when we, by sin, entered into rebellion against God, we entered into rebellion not only against his morality, not only against his, his mercy, not only in rebellion against his love and his approach to humanity, we entered into rebellion against his truth. We don't want to hear it. We suppress it in unrighteousness. We entered into rebellion against his wisdom and against his promises, and that ought to be a humbling thought for every person in this room. Because there, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is making a spiritual assessment rather than an intellectual one. 
That means he's, he's saying that if you have figured it out, it's not because you studied harder than somebody else. If it makes sense to you, it's not because you're the grade A student. Spiritual realities, the things of the Spirit of God, are not a scholarship prize for those who sweat and study and try their best. It is a gift of God's Spirit. Spiritual understanding is a gift of God. Paul preached Christ crucified. A stumbling block and folly, he says. Paul stood in, in Athens preaching to the philosophers. And Luke tells us that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And you know, until the Lord opened your eyes by his spirit, it was all just as foolish to you as well. Those of us who have been Christians for a few decades can tend to forget that. We tend to forget how unfathomable the gospel seems at first. And then we tend to imagine that we're really not much like the skeptics. We're not like those people who ask questions just to silence the gospel so we don't have to engage with the fact that maybe it's true. We tend to imagine that the Sadducees were in this class by themselves, that their unbelief was completely different from ours. We tend to forget that we could never be tempted. We imagine we could never be tempted, rather, by the cynicism that hid behind their smug self-satisfaction. But it's not a new phenomenon. It's not so far from our experience. And often this is how skepticism works, because the resurrection seems absurd to unbelief. And this was the challenge that Jesus faced in the temple from the question of the Sadducees. And Jesus responds, he's not caught off guard, he responds with the word of God's power. His response comes uh, in two parts. The first part, verses 34 to 36, is meant to convince us that the resurrection exceeds our current existence. The resurrection exceeds our current existence. Verse 34, Jesus says to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. You see, the Sadducees are working from a false premise. Their false premise was that life in the resurrection is essentially the same as life here Maybe it's a little bit longer, maybe it's a little bit more enjoyable, but all of the responsibilities, all of the joys, all of the relationships of this life will simply carry over to the next. Their false premise was that the next life, the life of the age of the resurrection, is essentially the same as this world, remastered and played on repeat forever. This is a common misconception, actually. Even today, even though the Sadducees have, have disappeared because you have heard people trying to, to wrap their minds around death and eternity and a member of their family has died and they try to console themselves and what do they say? They convince themselves or they try to that eternity really is just one extended vacation where you get to choose the itinerary. You get to do all the things that you love to do. And so if in this life dad loved fly fishing, we imagine him forever casting a line into bubbling brooks. 
If grandma loved to spend time with her grandchildren, heaven is nothing but a window where she can look down and watch them grow and see them change and then watch their children and then watch their children because that's what grandma likes, right? Now, if we take this same false premise that that the next life is essentially the same as this one, just a little bit better and a little bit longer... It's not a stretch when you consider how important family life was in Jewish culture to imagine that they would have a few hang-ups on whether and how marriage relationships would, would pass on into the resurrection as well. They'd have some expectations about that continuing. We see that pattern uh, continuing, even though in, in the extremes, perhaps, this is the teaching of the Mormon church. And so good Mormons go to the temple and they have their marriages not only Uh, performed and ratified by the state, but they have them sealed in the Mormon temple so that when they die, they and their spouse can continue on a heavenly marriage. They can populate worlds and galaxies with their heavenly spiritual offspring. It seems strange and it seems extreme, but it's all a product of the same false idea that life in the resurrection is merely an extension of life here on earth. Now, for the Sadducees, for these skeptics, they also assumed, or at least it fit their argument, they also assumed that the frustrations of life would also carry into the next. Not just the joys, but those things that were difficult. So if you think that your relationship with your in-laws is difficult now, just imagine being one of these seven men for eternity. Right? This is also a common misconception. In an interview in 2019, Richard Dawkins was asked whether he believes in life after death. This was his response. He said, even if you do go to heaven, imagine eternity. Not just sitting in heaven for billions of years, but trillions. Imagine how unbelievably boring it would be, he says. He's working from a false premise. The false premise is that eternity is nothing but an extended COVID lockdown. Time will pass for an eternity, from one monotonous moment to another monotonous moment, and our biggest conundrum will be, what do we do with ourselves for all this time? Now, but to the Sadducees, and I think by extension to Dawkins, Jesus says that is emphatically not the case. It's so much different that it can't even fit into the same categories. The resurrection from the dead, he says, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. He's telling us that that the resurrection will be so fundamentally different from this age that even the basic building block of human societies will be done away with. Even the human relationship that offers us the greatest sense of of intimacy and companionship and, uh, and fellowship together with another human soul intertwining such that the Bible speaks of it as becoming one flesh together, even that will become obsolete and in the most wonderful way possible. It's a small indication that the resurrection will exceed our current existence. Now, I know this passage causes some sad hearts among many happy Christians. Christians, newlyweds, oldlyweds, if that's a word. Those of you who have been in happy marriages are sometimes secretly sad to read these words and to feel uh, that there's something missing here. One 
Christian man said, I know I won't be married to my wife in heaven, but maybe God will let us be roommates. This is a hard truth to swallow for many Christians. There's no marriage in heaven, that there's a a different, somehow uh, better existence that we can't wrap our minds around. But if that's you, if you're wondering whether you're married or not married, if you're wondering how can heaven be heaven without those things, I want to challenge you for a moment. I want to challenge you to assume that Jesus is right. It shouldn't be too hard, right? challenge you to assume for a moment that Jesus is right. Assume that the God who made you, perhaps even the God who brought that spouse to you that you're so connected, imagine, assume for a moment that he is the one who knows what's best. Not only for his own glory, but also for the good of his people. Assume for a moment that the God who invented marriage actually did it with a metaphor in mind so that it would be a smaller picture of a much greater day when Jesus Christ will receive his bride to himself without spot or wrinkle or any stain of sin. That when marriage has served its purpose here to prepare us to see that greater thing, it will be unnecessary. Assume for a moment that the God of perfect love is able to make you love your spouse unmarried in heaven better than you ever could married here on earth. And assume for a moment if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're childless, if you're in a marriage that feels like purgatory, assume for a moment that God is able to give you a perfect fellowship with himself and with all the rest of his people that will far exceed the fellowship in the most tightly knit families that you could ever envy in this life. Assume for a moment that the God who is able to raise the dead is also the God who is able to make the joys of earthly life feel so insignificant to the joys of heavenly life that you will no longer wish that you had them. That's what he's telling us, I think. God is able to give us a resurrection life that will exceed our current existence. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 52. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. It's different, he says. There's a change. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. will be changed. And in the resurrection there will be no marriage, because marriage will have become wonderfully obsolete. It'll be swallowed up by something much better. Jesus says, verse 36, they will be not married or given in marriage for they cannot die. The Greek says they will be unable to die. It will not be possible for them to perish any longer. And they'll be equal to the angels and they'll be sons of God being sons of the resurrection. That's the first part of the answer that Jesus gives to unbelief. He tells us that the resurrection will exceed our current existence. And then the second answer is to teach us that the resurrection flows from God's eternal promises. The resurrection flows from God's eternal promises. Verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed 
in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, this is one of those arguments, I think. That if Jesus, Jesus hadn't made it, I don't imagine that any of us would have come up with it. There are far clearer passages that Jesus could have chosen in the Old Testament to show the truth of the resurrection. He could have picked Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's Old Testament language. He could have picked Psalm 16. He could have picked Isaiah 26. He could have picked Job 19. For I know my Redeemer lives, and after this, when my flesh is destroyed, yet I will see him in my flesh. My eyes will see him and not another. Jesus could have gone to many other clearer verses in the Old Testament to prove the resurrection is worth believing in, but he chose to turn to Exodus chapter 3. Side note, the typical explanation here uh, is that the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, and there's no hard evidence of that. They did not believe in all the traditions of the rabbis, but it's pretty clear from what we have from uh, those who are around them that they believed in all of the Old Testament canon. Jesus could have used those other verses, and it would have held the same weight, but he's challenged with a verse from Moses. He responds with a verse by Moses, and I think he does it to help us trust not only that the resurrection is, but there's a God who's able to make it happen. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, this is the, the passage of the bush. Of course, the Bible wasn't divided into chapters and verses, so Jesus refers here to the whole account, Moses' uh, encounter with God at the burning bush. And in Exodus chapter 3, uh, this title of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it shows up three times. It shows up the first time in a sort of innocuous place where God is merely introducing himself to Moses through the burning bush. He calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then in verse 15, again in verse 16, God gives the same title as the answer to a very specific question. What's the question? Well, Exodus 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? In other words, skipping from verse 6 to verse 13, he's just been given this great commission. God, you're sending me to your people. You're sending me to tell them things that I'm not sure they will believe when I tell them. They've been in slavery for 400 years. That's the entire realm of their earthly experience is to be oppressed and to be enslaved and to be servants of another nation. You're telling me that I'm going to go in them and tell them that you're going to drive them out, draw them out with a strong right hand bared against the nation that oppresses them. You're telling me I'm going to go and bring them out into a land that flows with milk and honey. You're telling me that I'm going to bring them out into a land of rest and worship and joy in your presence. And quite frankly, I think most of them aren't going to believe it. It doesn't fit with what they know about reality. They're going to imagine that it's something like a fairy tale from a children's book. And so when I go, who shall I say sent me? Who could possibly have the authority to make such unbelievable promises to his people? And you know God's answer. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am 
who I am. It's one of the most important texts of, in all of Scripture. It is God revealing himself to his people as the self-existent one. The one who needs nothing from anyone else. The, the one who, who called creation into being and time and space are on his payroll. Existence is his idea. That's who's able to make these promises. The great I am. To the Hebrews, it's Yahweh. In most of our Bibles, it's capital L-O-R-D. And the power of redemption rests on his eternal character. So in the next verse, God continues, verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the great I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. That is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I hope you see what Jesus is doing. He's saying that the resurrection isn't just about what we can expect. The resurrection isn't just about what we can wrap our minds around. It's about the God who can make it all happen. Jesus makes the resurrection an issue of God's character. What's the final line that he gives to the Pharisee? I'm sorry, to the Sadducees. A statement of who God is. Not even who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. They, they are subsumed under the argument that he's making about who God is. Luke 20, verse 38. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. It's a matter of his personal character. It's a matter of his unchanging goodness that his people will be sustained even beyond the grave. His promises don't cease to exist when his people die, and his people don't cease to exist so long as his promises remain. And this is how Jesus answers our doubt. He doesn't do it by taking the resurrection and shrinking it down into something that our minds can conceive of. He doesn't make it fit our earthly experience. He, he doesn't make the resurrection something small and mostly symbolic and, and easier to comprehend. Jesus answers our doubt by saying, consider the God who makes this promise. Consider the God who is, the God full of eternal goodness. He's the God who's able to raise the dead. He's the God who can fulfill his promises for his people. He is the God who chose his people as objects of his love and then laid the foundations of the earth, and it was in that order. This is how Jesus answers our doubt, by calling us to consider who God is and the promises that he's made. But then ultimately, Jesus answers our doubt by going before us to prove God's promises to us, to prove the power of the great I am. Christ became our great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ became the firstborn from the dead and the firstfruits of the resurrection. He became the guarantee of all the good things that are to come for those who trust in him. And by his resurrection, he assures us that God is able to raise his children forever. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and pray that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives. 
Help us to trust in you, O Lord. Help us to know you and to walk with you. Help us to believe on your promises and trust in your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.